do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. How a London City private banker took a permaculture course and now applies his finance knowledge to build the biggest regenerative farm of the UK. Definitely stay until the end to hear from Mark Drewell, the executive chair, how investors are responding to the new equity offer compared to depth of new foundation farms. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode, this time where we peel new foundation farms even further. This time we have Paul Pizzala, the Chief Investment Officer, on why a good business model is key and carbon credits are a distraction. Welcome, Paul. Hello, June. To start with your personal story, how did you end up at New Foundation Farms and going so deep, literally, in soil business models and all of that? The short answer is the global financial crisis in, in 2008, 2009, prompted a lot, of, a lot of questions about what is the purpose of finance. So I can give you the sort of the, the plain vanilla story about... No, we went a long one. <laughs> okay. How that took me to, you know, doing a lot of research into the whole area of, of climate change. But if I wind the clock back, you know, it was watching David Attenborough documentaries about the natural world. And then there's always that kind of bit at the end where the forests were getting, you know, sawn down by the loggers and, and there, was, there was always a bit of a sting in the tail. And that was kind of, you know, we'd sit there in the TV room with mum and uh, my grandfather at the time and my brother. And, uh, you know, my mother would always say, well, you know, she'd sort of gloss over that bit at the end and pretend it wasn't happening. So you just focus on all the nice bits. But somehow or the other, that was the bit that kind of stuck with me. And yeah, so, you know, I've always been into things like climbing, getting into the outdoors. And it's been a real kind of, you know, being in nature has been a real source of, of joy and solace and connection in a very crazy, complicated, fast paced world. So I've always been very, had that sort of that deep joy and wonder of nature. And what sort of happened during the global financial crisis, I asked myself, you know, what, you know, what is finance doing? to solve these issues that we're facing and you know on the back of that i started doing some courses i did a permaculture course back in i think it was you know 2008 2009 and it just completely opened up my changed my perspective in terms of 
the direction of travel of an industrial society, particularly from the perspective of agricultural permaculture and systems change and sort of understanding how industrial agriculture got to the state of where it is today. In some ways, it's a quirk of fate. You know, post the, the Second World War, there was a lot of kind of nitrates and potassiums from munitions to be to be used. And, you know, somebody had a great idea of using it as fertilizer. And hey, presto, no, they already knew that fertilizer was sort of destroying soil biology. That was one side of it. You know, the other side of it was learning about soil. And um, we had this really cool guy called Rod Everett who was leading the course. And uh, I would sort of describe him as the Doctor Who of permaculture, a real kind of cool, interesting character with this farm up in, I think it was Lancashire, up in the Dales. And he had basically kind of demonstrated every aspect that you of permaculture on his farm, you know, from companion planting, how to use sort of passive heating through solar masses, you know, rainwater collection, kind of all these different sorts of technologies on his farm. So it's like a sense of alternative technology, but in real time. But the big thing that really sort of blew my mind were these, you know, concepts that if you do permaculture or horticulture the right way, that the yield is infinite. And it was just a real kind of concept that stuck in my mind, which seems to come completely blow conventional logic out of the water. I know many people that did a permaculture course and then actually didn't, and maybe they changed their garden or they, but let's say professionally, they haven't put that to work as much as you're doing now. So what happened after that? Like, how did you, you could have gone back to banking, like after the week or two weeks or whatever the the number was, and you could have been back in the, the normal between brackets financial world, but you didn't. And you find yourself at the New Foundation Farms, which is really ambitious in terms of bringing permaculture and the whole principle of regenerative principles of regenerative agriculture to scale. So what happened in between that? Like what made that shift from this is great, I now see that infinite yields are potentially possible and everything I thought about ag is different. But then you actually start, okay, I need to work in this space. I mean, Monday to Friday or to Saturday, my, my block of time that I use, my financial brain I needs to be put to work in this space. So what was that journey like? Yeah, yeah great question. And it wasn't a, a logical sequence of events at all. So I heard about a place called Schumacher College when I was on this permaculture course. And it sounded like a very interesting place to learn about these alternative narratives and, and ecology. And I looked up, I was working in the city at the time in private banking. And, you know, I went back to private banking, but I I did my research on Schumacher College and you know, had a chat with some folks about it. And I said, oh, Schumacher, he's the guy who wrote Small is Beautiful and looked at the curriculum, you know, complexity science, deep ecology, you know, all sorts of really interesting stuff, but also a completely different way of learning as well, a much more embodied way of learning as well as an analytical way of learning. And that was when I jumped ship from the city in 2012 to take this deep dive into ecology. I mean, I've always been a bit of a risk taker you know, coming from a financial background. So I was quite comfortable doing that. And I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur in some shape or form. So it felt like a, it felt like the right thing to do. And of course, at Schumacher College, they have a horticulture program. They have the the holistic science program, which is what I did. They have a, what they call regenerative economics program now, which is they're going to launch a regenerative agriculture program in September 
this year. So there's some really exciting and fantastic things happening there. And that's kind of really opens up a, a whole new level of understanding in terms of the challenges that we face. You know, what I found really interesting about Schumacher College is that the, the narrative was very much about a local economy transition-based change to addressing climate change and the other, if you like, planetary boundaries that, that are, whether it's deforestation, ocean acidification, so on and so forth. The, the solutions are very much presented through the lens of transition and local change. And, and I did follow that route for a while. Like I got involved in local renewable energy and raising finance for hydro and, and solar projects. But it sort of struck me that those projects, whilst you're very useful and important at a local level weren't going to shift the needle at an, an industrial macro scale. So on the back of that, I, I went back to the city and I ended up getting a job with an impact fund manager in public equity markets who had their own theory of change and way of dividing up the market into positive impact, let's say neutral and negative impact companies and kind of what you end up with is quite a small bucket of investable companies that are doing something positive in the world and it it sort of struck me that that's brilliant but there's this other 95 percent capital that (laughs) needs to make the shift and what really sparked my interest was to you know to find the entrepreneurs that were the disruptive entrepreneurs that were putting these solutions into practice on the ground. And, you know, on the back of that, that's really, you know, I've known Mark for about four or five years and we talked about various different projects. We talked about launching a fund, you know, on the back of the of his book, The Meaningful Economy. But that, that didn't really speak to me. But when he came to my office with Marcus and pitched the idea of new foundation farms, it was just so obvious to me that the soil is the core asset of humanity, not just agriculture. And so that's kind of when I literally sort of leapt out of my chair and said, yes, this is <laughs> this is for me. But they like pitched it to you to join or they pitched because they were looking for money? Yeah, they pitched to me because they were looking for money. And I was super excited in the process of working with them and looking at strategy and going through pitch decks. We formed a very trusted close relationship and eventually sort of six months ago joined as chief investment officer and which is actually an excellent bridge to what we already discussed in the previous interviews obviously the fundraising process and what has changed over the last weeks because you were and obviously please walk me through the process you are still really ambitious but raising 20 million pounds sterling in depth and we uncovered that and we also discussed the differences or the unusual way of doing that or the, the fact that you raise such a large depth instead of equity or instead of a mix, etc. Obviously, everything about new foundation farms is quite unusual, but you have made some changes in the last couple of weeks. Can you speak a bit about what you've learned and the why of these changes in the offering, basically? Obviously, very clearly, this is not investment advice, but I'm very interested in how these mechanisms work and obviously learning or Pitching to so many people and having so many conversations has changed something within the organization and you've now adjusted, let's say, the offerings. I'm very curious about that process. Yeah, it's a great question. So the initial offer was to have a a preference share, which is in effect uh, a securitized 
investment that has the collateral of the company's assets as security. So it gives the investor a good feeling of comfort because there's a strong asset backing. And, you know, that comes with a fixed return, say something like a a 4% coupon, which in the world of government bonds and corporate bonds looks quite attractive. In the world of venture capital, impact investing and private equity, it's not going to really excite anybody. So there's the sort of the naked ambition of financial capital seeking return. That's definitely one aspect that came back to us in terms of having a better balance of risk, return and impact. The impact story has never been an issue. That's a real driver in terms of interest. And that's the hook. What was causing some investors to fall off the hook was the the financial return on offer. But it wasn't just that it's only 4%. It's, well, hang on a second, we want to be in the journey with you boots and all. And to be a, you know, fully participating as a risk taker, that means we want the upside as well as the risk and as well as the impact. So that was really that side of the story. And then we took that feedback and we looked at it more closely ourselves in order for everybody to be aligned and motivated and sharing risk equally, when you sort of step back and take a look at it, it does make sense for investors and founders to be equally on the line in terms of risk and reward. So it's just a a much better alignment of interests at the end of the day. And so can you walk us through what you're currently, so what has changed from that 20 million of preferred shares with a 4% return. What are you currently looking for? What are you currently talking to, talking about to investors? Sure. Okay. So it's still 20 million. And broadly speaking, 16 million of that is in farmland acquisition, 1,000 acre farm with some capital expenditure for retail and processing on farm. And then roughly four million for what we would call enterprise development. So, you know, for the executive team, for the systems, consulting, you know, so so on and so forth, really to develop the the enterprise platform to be able to scale the business well above and beyond a thousand acres. So what's on offer for investors? Well, it's 25% of the profits of the company. So effectively, what you would be getting is a 25% share of the profits of the company. And you would be getting the security of the asset. So in a way, what we've done is we've we've said, look, the mission, the impact, the business model, all of that stays exactly the same. There's no change there. What we're doing is recognizing that investors want want more upside that, that comes with the risk. And we're also saying, you know, to make this a really good deal for you, we're making sure that providers of capital are first in line in the capital structure. So their money is capitalized by the assets of the company, i.e. the farmlands, the capex, you know, cash on the balance sheet. So in those terms, I mean, if I was looking at it, I would be going, wow, that's a really good deal. Of course, with a different risk structure, because it could be less than 4%. What's the duration? Like, is it buying back equity with the profit, like a profit sharing? 
well, how long am I potentially as an investor? Like, how long am I part of the journey? In this case, and where's the cap? Okay. So a good benchmark would be to think in terms of venture capital or private equity. In terms of risk, basically. Yeah, in terms of risk, but also in terms of how long do I need to think, what is my time horizon as an investor? So your time horizon has got to be really at least 10 years, you know. So it's going to take four years to get to a point where we're demonstrating profitability at that stage of the game when we've proven out the business model, the ecology, the economics, the processing, the brand, the customer satisfaction, the ability to add complementary enterprises on farm, it's at that stage then we can go out to the market and talk to other landholders or other farmers and you know start to plan for the next 2,000, 3,000 acres regionally. And you know that will take some time to do that. So realistically, in 10 years, could we be at 10,000 acres? Absolutely, yes. That's the next milestone. In terms of our modelling, what does that look like to investors? That's you know something like a, a two to three times return, very conservatively, because we're not baking in any of the complementary activities. We're not baking in carbon offsets. And, you know, the whole carbon offset. Nice bridge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. The whole carbon offset story, you know, for us, that's dropped straight to the bottom line and that can really supercharge returns. The big story is, you know, when you get to 60,000 acres, you get a lot of leverage and economies of scale and a lot of learning, of course, in the business. So we will learn a lot in terms of what we can do, what we can't do, how we can optimize the business, how we can optimize revenue streams, you know, so on and so forth. And you could be looking at a 10, 20 times your money on a 60,000 acre scale so that's where the patient money really gets its return but also that's where it really gets its impact because at that sort of scale then you know you've got a big voice in terms of being able to demonstrate that yes regenerative agriculture does exactly what it it said we would do and it probably does a host of other things that we didn't even know it was capable of too so that's why you you need to have a long-term horizon so does that mean let's say i invest does it mean that there's a fixed time or a fixed return in a sense? Is there 10 years and then whatever came back from the 25% profit, that's great. And then we close the deal and I'm no longer part of the company. Or is there like in some other, let's say, revenue share, revenue-based one, okay, until 3x and then we close the deal. Or is there no no end to, to the deal, it just continues to flow also after 10 years, mostly structured? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, personally, I would love investors to stay for the whole journey that could be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. I'm hoping that regenerative agriculture in the UK is going to be around for the next few hundred years. So, you know, you could imagine a scenario where as an investor, you hold onto this and you pass it on to the next generation. Absolutely. You could also imagine a scenario where an investor, they want to exit. 
in 10 years' time or 15 years' time or wherever it happens to be, and they can sell their shares, absolutely, and we would help to facilitate that type of transaction. And I'm imagining there's some kind of, I wouldn't say lock-up, but as there's a longer, I mean, you will have that discussion with every investor, like, look, this is a long-term thing, don't come after two years and say, please sell my, like, find somewhere to, to sell my shares. Is there any commitment they have to commit to, like at least five years or at least seven years to be part of the journey? Or do you leave that to the investor to do that? Like, is there any signed, like, okay, I, I know this is long-term, so at least I'm on board for five years, then we'll see. What have you done there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's more implicit than explicit. So if you look at the financial model and you look at the pitch, you know, the first thousand acres, which we get to profitability and say, four years, that's just the start of the journey. So really, as a bare minimum, you have to be thinking in terms of four to five years. You know, if you're a a foundation and you're granting money, that's kind of the first big milestone that you want to see us achieve. And yet that's a different type of money, obviously. As an investor, you know, that's obviously the first milestone you want to see us achieve. And then you want to see us achieve the next milestone, which is 10,000 acres. And is that five years, six years, seven years? It depends. Yeah, it depends how fast things move and how well we execute. So as an investor, you've got to have a 10-year time horizon if you want to maximize both your financial return and the impact of the business. And we've had some amazing introductions from doing these podcasts with you, Kuhn. Shout out to the community. Thank you for responding. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, big shout out to the community. And, you know, when when impact investors get this stuff who come from a private equity or a venture capital background, their insightfulness and the quality of their questions into, you know, the business model and also the way that we're structuring the business is that is exactly the type of investor that we want on, on board. You know, really super smart commercially highly intelligent, highly creative, and actually really, really supportive. So you're not getting into a, an argument about does your business model work or does regenerative agriculture work? You're, you're getting really smart, supportive questions to help you kind of do a much better job. And let's kind of step back, look at the big picture here, right? Okay, so agriculture is a big contributor to climate change, deforestation, biodiversity loss, water runoff, eutrophication in oceans. So if you really get that stuff, you want to see us succeed big time so we can replicate this model 20 times in the UK, 1,000 times in Europe, 1,000 times in America, 10,000 times in Asia. So that's the kind of level of commitment that personally I'm looking for from investors, you know, somebody, people that, yeah, let's make a whole load of money and create a whole load of wealth, but let's also completely change the whole story about ecological capital creation in the UK, Europe, US, and Asia. Yeah, I think it's fascinating for anybody obviously interested, re reach out, but I had the pleasure to go through the deal room or the data room, and there's a lot of information in there on if you're interested in, in the discussion, animal versus non-animal and region ag on uh, enough is enough, which we obviously discussed with Marcus, like the commitment and the, the level of thought, not just on the ag piece. And we discussed it a lot with uh, the interview with Marcus, 
but also on the enterprise piece, like how to structure this for the long run as well. And you automatically select the type of investors that are interested in that because if you go through all of that and if you're not interested in this, you would have stopped reading a long time ago or stopped listening to this interview as well. So it's interesting how that's uh, self-selecting and how much thought and work you have put in this on the non-farming piece before. And not, I'm not even talking about the processing. I'm just talking about the enterprise structures. And we have discussed that, obviously, how to keep the purpose of the company and the steering wheel focused on the long term, which is my follow-up question. We've discussed it often with the guys and girls of Purpose Capital, Purpose Ventures and others, like how to make sure that not a majority of the equity shareholders after six years because they changed their mind or they donated, they inherited uh, the shares from whoever or got it and suddenly say, no, actually, let's sell all this land and, and build a lot of villas uh, because development is maybe easier. So as you have pivoted partly to more equity and profit share model, has that purpose piece changed? And how is that, I'm imagining, not so implicit, but more explicit, like making sure this is a 20, 30 plus year thing and not if you change your mind in six years or Mark changes his mind or some of the shareholders say, okay, let's build a really big amusement park and, uh, and let's copy Disneyland in, uh, in, in the UK. Has that changed or not with this new raising? Very good question. I think we've really sharpened up on the governance and how the different stakeholders in the business, in the enterprise, are represented. So effectively, you've got investors, founders, employees, community. So we really think it's very important that the community of shoppers have a, a voice in the business, You know, not just from the point of view of it's a good marketing tactic, but from the point of view of really helping to create a close connection to where does my food come from and how is it made and how is the land affected and just really helping to bring the shoppers into the whole equation of, you know, how do we grow food and what does it mean to run the business? And of course, the employees is the other stakeholder. So the purpose lock of the business being a you know a regenerative enterprise that grows nutrient dense food and fiber on regenerating soils that stays the same and that is enshrined in the articles of association so you'd have to have nothing short of a revolution with pitchforks and guns to change the purpose of the organization so that would be an extremely unlikely event that the purpose of the organization would change because, you know, A, it's the culture of the organization that is incredibly important. At the end of the day, governance is incredibly important as a check and a balance in order to steer the ship. But in my view, in the organizations that I've worked in, it's, it's the culture that you create that really means that the purpose lives and flourishes in the people in the company. And, you know, part of that is there's a reason why Kirsty, Wayne and myself, alongside Marcus and, and Mark, have, are together. And that's because it's not a, a textbook exercise for us. It's a real embodiment of values. And it's the embodiment of values that really gives the quality assurance to the business in terms of its purpose. So, you know, you can think of it as a calling and, you know, more than a vocation, it's a calling. It's something that we feel very strongly about. And that's what really guides the purpose of the organization, as well as having 
you know, the governance structures in place in the articles of association and in the structure of the business and then the way the different stakeholders get to vote to ensure that that purpose evolves and lives on over time. And just to push back a bit, because the calling obviously is great and the culture is amazing, but those things can change, especially we're talking about a 10, 20, 30 year movement almost. And we've seen that in the past, like companies that started great and at some point things change, especially when there's a lot of money at stake. So I think unless the documents of association cannot be changed to a non-regenerative or to a de-regenerative or extractive way, unless there is a, a stop at the end, like, okay, this is the bare minimum that this should do for a hundred years at least. Things always change, unfortunately or fortunately. I mean, things shift and uh, this is long-term stuff. So unless there's a legal backstop, I think that's what Purpose has been pushing for, like making sure that even if somebody comes and puts a billion on the table, stuff is, still didn't change because there is a golden chair or there is a vote that makes sure that, okay, we can never go to development of this 1000 acres like that's at least it should always be farmed regeneratively and these are the things what we consider regeneratively whatever else you're going to do things change maybe in 10 years we have a very different outlook on, on animals or very different outlook on processing or very different outlook on etc cetera, etc cetera. but that that core needs to be preserved but it's something we challenged with because of course we can say at the moment okay these are the equity shares this is the votes but also that changes over time and things shift and especially as we're looking long-term. And many have experienced that, I think, that the culture shifts and at some point suddenly you are against the 51 vote and things things that never would be able to change are suddenly changed. And that would be a shame. So just to push back a bit on that, like it's we need to really think the long-term here and make sure it's even goes beyond us. Like it goes beyond you guys, the team. It goes beyond like that not, I don't know, if you have children with your children at some point, inherit the shares and say, yeah, we don't care. But they probably do, but we just want to develop it because somebody comes with a lot of money and uh, it changes lives. So it's that making sure that even in the rarest cases of the opportunity, of course, pitchforks and guns, that we cannot work on that. But all the other legal loopholes should be at least closed. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, there is a purpose lock in the business which enshrines the purpose of the business as far as we possibly can in terms of what a a legal document looks like. So, you know, you'd need to have a a talk with the lawyers on this one in order to fully explore and investigate all the potential loopholes and mechanisms for applying pressure to change, because you can never 100% guarantee something. That's impossible. No, no, of course, we just have to rule out all the the known knowns that okay and the rest we'll see yeah so i mean you know the you take your scenario of you know hang on a second we've got all this sixty thousand acres of prime agricultural land which is it suddenly there's uh there's an influx of 10 million people projected to come to the uk because of climate chaos right and suddenly that regenerative land looks very exciting to <laughs> to build on in you know sort of 50 years time or something like that. You'd have to have a two-third majority of all stakeholders to change the purpose of the organization. So that's a very high bar to get over. Is there a reason why it's not 100 or that just was impossible? Like a unanimous vote for change of the purpose? If you have to have a hundred percent, if you have to have a hundred percent vote for everything, then you're never going to do anything. No, no, just for the core 
course, like it can never be built on or something. I'm curious about it. I, I mean, it's a very geeky subject probably, but very curious about that purpose lock and two third is a lot, but still sometimes possible. I mean, you see it with other organizations, but let's, um, be conscious of time as well. And I want to ask, ask some, some follow-up questions on the carbon piece, actually, that you have a, a, I wouldn't say a strong opinion, but quite a, quite a strong opinion on. Like, why do you say it's an interesting distraction, but a good business model is key? Well, I mean, if you sort of take, you know, why is there a, first question, why is there a carbon price and what is the carbon price? So it's a subsidy. So, the car, so a carbon price is basically a subsidy to enable entrepreneurs to take risk or to force corporates to change the way they do business and, and offset their carbon taxes. So it's a it's a quota subsidy tax incentive framework and mechanism. So it's sort of at the margin, it's intended to incentivize change, but it's not a strategy. Carbon tax is not a strategy. We're putting something like 50 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. So a subsidy that might be $1, $5, $10, $70 per tonne of carbon dioxide isn't fundamentally going to change anything. You have to have an industrial strategy and businesses that are doing the work the intrinsically the, the ecological benefits or the creation of ecological capital is built into the business model without a reliance on subsidies that is the driver of change so the subsidies are really nice thing to have at the margin you know brilliant for our business but we never designed a business that needed to rely on subsidies in order to be effective economically and ecologically but if you look at the renewable energy space until recently in some places in some places still were reliant on some kind of direct or indirect subsidies to get going and created this industry that now is competing head to head obviously there are a lot of subsidies for the fossil fuel industry and a lot of subsidies for the agriculture industry so maybe we should just take them away i mean that could be an answer to my follow-up question but so there is in that transition phase, as we get going and people start doing things at scale, do you see a role for it? Or is it a, I wouldn't say waste of time, but I mean, to build a market in that place, to do the research, to do the measurement, it's a lot of folk. I mean, you, you, it's a lot of distraction potentially as well. Like, do you think it's a distraction even in a transition phase or is there a role for it to kickstart a lot of hectares to get going or acres? Yeah. Well, okay. So from the point of view of new foundation farms, you know, Steve Jobs didn't invent the iPhone by thinking about BlackBerry, right? So my belief is that we need to focus on what we're doing and not worry about policy, carbon prices, other business models. You know, that that's good stuff to know and it'll become more important in the future. But right now our focus is on having a successful capital raise and executing on the first five years of our business plan, regardless I'm not the best person to talk about carbon taxes and subsidies and things like that because, you know, I'm an economist. I've got a master's in finance and investment. I'm a holistic scientist. And, you know, I started an NGO in the States called the Climate Map, which kind of looked at a lot of these issues about how do you scale 
impactful projects that are you know going to draw down gigatons. So you know we could do a whole new kind of community platform on that and suck up a, a lot of airtime. No, look, it, it really is super important, but it's got to be joined up. It's got to be holistic. There has to be an ecosystem. There's got to be big corporates making the change. You know, like Microsoft, Bill Gates's breakthrough ventures, all the stuff that Jeremy Grantham is doing. There's extraordinary activity at the venture capital level going on in the States at the moment. You know, there's Joe Biden's Green Deal. There's a vast universe of things happening. So really just to kind of like focus on the carbon price, it's just a piece in the puzzle. Yeah, it's a really important piece in the puzzle as a subsidy in order to incentivize capital to take risks and generate new business models for sure. There's no doubt about that. But in terms of new foundation farms, the regenerative agriculture piece is so strong on its own in terms of its ability to regenerate soil and ecosystems and the business model that we've created in terms of cutting out all the middlemen and going direct to consumer that really bumps the margins of the business right up. We don't need to think about, do we draw down eight tons per acre at $20 or is it three tons per acre at $100. We will do that piece of work in a year's time and we'll work with who we think are the best people to really push the whole agenda forward, for sure. Absolutely. That's really super exciting, but it's not our focus right now. And to be conscious of your time and end with a few questions I always like to ask. I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't call them fire questions, but definitely sort of rapid. What do you believe to be true about regenerative agriculture that others don't? So where are you contrarian? Definitely inspired by John Kempf that usually asks this question in a slightly different form. Yeah, I would say my belief is that you can produce a much higher yield than conventional agriculture. And when you say yield, is that like weight or are you looking at calories or nutrients? How, how do you define yield? The whole bushel. So nutrient density, vitamins, weight, protein, whatever it is that you need to kind of feed the world. My belief is that regenerative agriculture is, is superior across all dimensions, dimensions compared to conventional agriculture. And if you could change one thing, so you have a magic wand, you can change one thing in agriculture, in the food industry as well. I mean, you can choose. What would that be? It would be mindset. Mindset is the biggest barrier to change. Absolutely. So if I could wave the magic wand and I could get people to think ecologically as well as economically, that is the change that I would make. The real estate between our ears. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. There's, you know, once, you, once you've undergone, once you've had a mindset shift and you have that ecological lens, you realize that is absolutely the highest order at which you can operate at, you know, at least as we know, as far as we know as humans. I mean, I'm sure there are, there are other <laughs> levels of, of being able to operate. But I mean, effectively, what it does is the question you've always got to ask yourself is, am I generating ecological capital or am I destroying ecological capital? And like when we had a population of one or two billion on the earth, destroying ecological capital wasn't such a big deal because there was plenty of spare capacity for ecological systems to restore themselves. So we could get away with it. It's fine. With 7 billion people on the planet and everybody wanting to have the, a meat-rich diet 
two cars, foreign holidays, you can't not think in those terms anymore because the, the consequences are too dire. And a final question, I always say final, but it never is. If tomorrow you'll be, or actually this morning as well, in charge of a $1 billion or $1 billion pound sterling, I don't care about the currency, investment fund, you have a long-term view. You could have, you could be super short as well if you want to, but it is an investment fund, meaning we're looking not to grant, but to invest. Could be 0% return. I mean, you're, you're free to choose. What would you focus on? What would be your priorities to where and how to put that money to work? Yeah, I, do you know, I, I knew this question was coming and... Uh... <laughs> My sort of like first answer is like a billion pounds isn't that much these days. Can we sort of, can we look at that? I asked this question because I'm interested in priorities. Like what would you focus on? So let's, I mean, we've seen the inflation over the lifetime of this podcast. So this apparently a billion is that not that much anymore. So let's go for a hundred, a hundred billion. What would you do? Okay. So like if I had a hundred billion, I mean, I, I would do something like um, a breakthrough ventures, which is Bill Gates's kind of answer to scaling technologies that are going to deal with drawing down carbon dioxide. And I, I would focus on regenerative entrepreneurs. So I'd have a you know hundred billion pound fund that is finding the regenerative entrepreneurs that are applying systems thinking to solving ecological value creation and human wealth creation. And I would throw a lot of money at that. Yeah, I think a perfect answer I I love the breakthrough ventures. I will definitely link it below. What I always miss is, I mean, for an engineer and technologist, it's like the place of man in nature, like our role in and the nature-based solutions uh, for, which is a horrible name. Uh, but if you see what they fund and if you see how Gates talks about agriculture, I think there's a lot to learn. I would love to discuss with him here on the podcast. If anybody has an intro, definitely let me know. But if you, I think there is that kind of brain power we need in regenerative agriculture and it seems like he's still very far or at least the foundation and everything they do and the breakthrough ventures etc is very far from that but that's from the outside i've never had obviously that discussion uh, with him i'm looking forward to like the potential he, he did tweet something a year ago i think on soil etc so there's some interest but then the approach is always not very holistic i think to say the least yeah i mean i i haven't dived really deeply into that side of Bill Gates's life. So I, I haven't really got a, a strong answer. You know, I, I mean, whenever you talk about billionaires and, and their agendas, it always becomes a very contentious issue. I think the, the direction of travel is good. The more people are talking about these conversations and diving deeper into what regenerative agriculture actually means and how you can pursue scaling strategies that are good for communities good for human health good for gut health good for soil health good for biodiversity good for equality of ownership the better yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion at some point we'll have that here i want to thank you so much for now paul we'll have mark on in a second to dive a bit deeper into the investor reactions to let's say the broadening of focus, or I wouldn't call it a pivot because it's way too harsh, but to talk about the funding piece. But for now, I want to thank you for your time, your sharing of your journey and your discussion until here. Brilliant. A real pleasure. Thank you so much for the airtime. Really appreciate it. So we have Mark Drew back on the show together with Paul, obviously. 
to just reflect a bit on the reaction of investors to this shift in fundraising to a more equity piece, a more risk-taking and profit-sharing. So Mark, welcome back and let's dive straight into that. What was the reaction on the floor on the fundraising uh, roadshow that you've been doing obviously from your home mostly? But what has been the reaction on Zoom basically? Hello again, Kun. Yeah, the reaction has been really interesting because what we've realized is fundamentally people who are investing for impact, who are using their money to create change in the world, are hardwired for risk. So going from a preference share with a fixed return to an ordinary share with no guaranteed return, but all of the excitement of a journey and the upside that's possible, it just lands much more easily. So it's much easier, we're finding, for people to say yes. And has the conversation then shift, like the energy of people being interested? Because, of course, on the impact piece and the, the company piece, nothing changed. And people are either excited or not. And I, I'm imagining if they're excited, they will continue talking. But, but actually, a question to both of you, Paul and, and Mark, has that, have you seen like the last few weeks since you've been changing this and putting this into place, like a different kind of engagement or a different kind of leaning in? I'm actually doing that now. Nobody can see it, but leaning in of investors or just like people self-select and, and the ones that are super excited about this are still the ones you talk to. And, or, or have there been some people that are, were interested in the preferred shares and are now no longer interested. What has been the feeling around in terms of leaning in and getting to, let's say, the next phase of potentially commitments and obviously investments as well? I'd say, first of all, what's fascinating is that there hasn't been a single person who was interested in the fixed return preference shares who said, thanks, but now you want to give me a general share in the ordinary shares in the company and a full share of the upside. There's been nobody who said, no, that's not interesting. So it hasn't turned anyone off. On the turning people on side, from the beginning of our journey, sort of eight, 10 weeks ago, we had a number of people who said to us, look, I love what you're doing, but what I need you to do is, if you want my money, you're going to have to give me a share of the upside, um, because that's what I do. That's how I invest. So what's happened is it's opened the door to a whole raft of people who had previously said, I love it, but you know, you don't fit my investment profile. Yeah, and absolutely. And I, I also think um, not only has it release that extra amount of energy with investors. It's also galvanized the team at New Foundation Farms too. So in that sense, it's definitely a win-win. So there's more energy for, for the raise on all sides. And in terms of timeline, what has changed or has that changed at all? So the timeline, up until now, we have been talking to people on the basis of saying, this is the offer and we're talking to a wide range of different kinds of investor with a view to understanding what makes sense. The result of that, that cycle is now ending. And so our expectation is that within two weeks from now, the offer will change from draft to a document that says the offer opens on date X, which uh, should be around the middle of May, and closes on date Y, which will have an initial close at the end of June. So we're shifting from conversations about decision to invest, do you like what we're saying, to, right, this is now the journey, are you in or out? And we are um, now filling the book. And the ambition is that that will allow us to acquiring land and be on the first thousand acres by the end of the summer. Very, very interesting. And just to wrap up, we discussed in the interview, if you're still here with us, you for sure heard it a lot on governance structure. And I was pushing a bit on the the purpose led and how to make sure 
there's a purpose locker. We just, we discussed it quite extensively, but I'm very interested in, I didn't dive deeper into it, so I can ask now again, uh, on the two thirds. So Paul mentioned there has to be a two third vote, majority vote of all stakeholders individually. So all the pieces, and I would love to know a bit more on that to change the purpose of the company. But Mark, you are um, deep into that as well. What does that two third mean? And why is that two third? Two thirds is really important. If you look at the, um, uh, the constitutions of most countries around the world, most written constitutions, they basically say for, for general decision making, 50% vote of whoever's got to make the decision is fine. But if it's something big and fundamental, it requires a two thirds majority of everybody. So in this case, the way we structured it, it basically says you need a two thirds vote of the employees and a, to change any article in the company's articles, two thirds vote of the employees and a two thirds vote of the investors or the funders and a two-thirds vote of society and for as long as the founders are around a two-thirds vote of the founders and a two-thirds vote of the board now that's a very very high bar but it does mean that if in two generations time people wake up and say actually this particular article or this statement of purpose isn't right and we need to move it on then you can and so you don't hold society you know two generations time to an absolute specific that we thought was really clever right now yeah it gives you the chances thank you so much for elaborating on that and thank you both for coming on for allowing us to follow this journey and be sort of fly in the wall on, on some of these things and uh, looking forward to continue doing that obviously and wishing you a great day today and looking forward to the next one and have a regenerative time, Kun. It's all going good. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Kun. Real, real pleasure to talk with you. If you would like to learn more on how to put money to work in regenerative food and agriculture, find our video course on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course. This course will teach you to understand the opportunities, to get to know the main players, to learn about the main trends and how to evaluate a new investment opportunity, like what kind of questions to ask. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three. If this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast. <laughs>